The Sunday before the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the most hopeful day the disciples of Jesus Christ ever had. Back in Luke chapter 19, we read about this day the week before the resurrection of Christ, the day we call Palm Sunday. And we read together about how a large crowd of Jesus' own followers greeted him as he entered the city of Jerusalem and praising God by saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It was a day of great hope as the throng of followers of Jesus welcomed him to the city of Jerusalem and expected him to begin the process of becoming the king of Israel. The people had great hope that following Christ as they had, some of them for years, was finally going to pay off. Their hopes that Jesus would fix everything that was wrong with their nation seemed so close to becoming a reality. And they're not alone. Although we have different expectations of Jesus, other people since that time also have put their hope in Jesus Christ, including maybe you. Maybe you've put your hope in Jesus just as his followers did on Palm Sunday. Because the truth of the matter is that many people look to Jesus with hope. Many people Look to Jesus with hope. And all the people who had followed Jesus were looking hopefully for the things that they believed he would deliver to them as his followers. But as we come to our passage of Scripture for this message, in Luke chapter 24, verse 13, Luke, the writer of this gospel, focuses in, he zooms in on one small group of disciples, two of them, in fact. And he begins to tell us about these two people who had hope in Jesus, because the way they were responding to what had happened after the resurrection of Christ was very much uh, emblematic of how all of Jesus' followers were feeling and how many followers of Jesus even today feel at times about him. Beginning in verse 13, the Bible tells us that it says, Now that same day, that is the same day that Jesus rose from the dead, the same day that his followers came to his tomb and found it empty, that same day, verse 13 says, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. And so Luke focuses in on these two people. They were probably going home after spending the week in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And we think they're going home because later on in the passage, they go in and they invite Jesus to stay with them. And so it seems clear that this is where they live. And it's very possible that these are just two friends who are journeyed together, but it might also be a husband and wife or a husband or a man and his son. But either way, the Bible tells us these two were followers of Jesus because it says in verse 13, two of them, that means two of the followers of Jesus who were wondering about the empty tomb that they found early on Easter Sunday. And these two people had once had great hope in Jesus, but their hope was now 
failing at best. It was shaky at best. Look at verse 14. It says, They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And so as they proceed on this road from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus, of course they're talking about the events of the past week. Verse 15 says, As they talked and discussed these things, and it's interesting because the word discussed is a word of great emotional intensity. It's almost used at times to describe an argument. And so what we're to understand is that these two disciples of Jesus, these two followers of his, are desperately trying to make sense of what has happened. They're trying to make sense of how just a week ago Christ had entered the city of Jerusalem with great fanfare and welcome. And how during the days after that, he had taught so forcefully and powerfully in the temple. And then all of a sudden, he was betrayed and tried and crucified and buried. And now his tomb was empty. These two people are trying to make sense of this. And trying to decide if there's anything left of their hope. But it's interesting that the Bible says, as they walked and talked and discussed these things, verse 15 says, Jesus himself came up. And of course, this is Jesus, the resurrected Lord. He who has a resurrected body, and as we'll see later, can come and go instantaneously. He can appear and disappear because he has a glorified human body. But in this instance, he doesn't appear in a way that would give them any sense of the supernatural. He just seemed like another traveler on the road who was perhaps walking faster than them or maybe walking slower than them. And either he caught up to them or they caught up to him. But either way, he falls into company with them and they begin talking. Verse 15 goes on and says, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So even though this is the Lord Jesus Christ, the man in whom they had put their hope, they did not realize that it was him. And verse 15 or verse 16, when it says they were kept from recognizing him, this uses what's called the divine passive. It's a word that describes an act of God without mentioning God by name. And so this is God who has kept them from recognizing Christ. Verse 17 continues the story and says, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And so because they were having such an intense discussion, of course, other people who might be on the road would have heard that they were talking very animatedly about something. And so Christ asks them, what is this topic of conversation that you are entering into together with such great intensity? And verse 17 tells us how their hope has deflated. It says in the middle of that verse, they stood still. So they stop walking. They're so emotional about what has happened that they actually stop walking and it says their face is downcast. And so just the very look of them, can, you can see that they were people who were very uh, disheartened by the topic that they were discussing. But in addition to being disheartened by what has happened, they're very surprised because everything that had happened in the past week had happened in such a public way that they assume everyone in Jerusalem knew about them. And so in verse 18, it says, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? 
And so this was the Passover feast. People from all over Israel had gathered in Jerusalem. And so there were many visitors in Jerusalem, true. But this man, Cleopas, this follower of Jesus, can't believe that someone could be visiting Jerusalem at this time and not be aware of who Jesus was and how he had been crucified. Well, Jesus continues not necessarily to play dumb, but not to divulge the fact that he knows what they're saying. And so he asks him in verse 19, what things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth? And usually in the gospel according to Luke, especially when Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth, it is referring to him as the great miracle worker primarily, but also the great teacher that he was. And so the two people discussing these things continue and say, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. In describing Jesus as a prophet, they are not downgrading him at all. Jesus himself identified himself as a prophet at various times throughout the gospel according to Luke. And so whatever they said about Jesus, this was not a debatable point. Everyone considered Christ to be a prophet. But they go further and say in verse 19 that he was powerful in word and deed. So not only the things that he taught had great spiritual power, but by saying that he was powerful indeed, they are referring, of course, to the miracles that Christ had done that authenticated his claims and his message. And it says, continuing in verse 19, he was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And so these people certainly believe, these two disciples of Jesus, like all the disciples of Jesus, certainly believe that Christ is someone sent from God. His miracles made that undeniable. And they continued their description of him in verse 20, when they say, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. So they describe the events of Thursday night and Friday morning where Christ was tried and crucified unjustly. And then in verse 21, we find out the source of their hope or the meaning of their hope. These two people had hope in Jesus, but what was that hope that they had in him? Verse 21 tells us, it says, But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That is the definition of their hope. The things that they desperately wanted to be true about Christ, the things that they had put their emotional uh, energy into and had set their hearts upon was that Jesus would come and redeem Israel. And by redeeming Israel, they mean to take out from under the Roman government. The word redeem is a word that means to buy back from the marketplace, to buy back something that was once yours. And for the Jewish people, they had once been a free people, but now they were subject to the Roman Empire. The Messiah that they were seeking and looking for would be a powerful person who would come and free them from the yoke of the Roman Empire. This was their hope in Jesus. But that hope seems to have gone away completely. 
Christ is dead, and he's nowhere to be found. But verse 22 goes on and says, in addition, oh, at the end of verse 21, it says, it is the third day since all this took place. And that's an interesting statement. Because Christ himself had prophesied that he would be raised on the third day. And the disciples of Jesus had heard him say this more than once. And so perhaps they've recalled some of these prophecies that Christ had given. Because they put that together in verse 22 with the story or the announcement, I should say, of the resurrection. Verse 22 says, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. As these two people discussed the meaning of Christ's life and his death and his empty tomb, they had begun to put together the truth that Christ might be alive, The angels had told the women that he was alive, but they hadn't seen Jesus, at least not to their knowledge, alive yet. And so the hopes that they had in him haven't died completely, but they were very much shaky at best. And the truth of the matter is there are a lot of people who come to Jesus, who look to Jesus with hope. But just like these two people, The hope that people sometimes rest in Jesus is a hope of their own making. It's a hope of their own selfish ambitions or personal desires. These two people were looking for a nation that was free of Roman slavery under a Jewish king from the Davidic line that they could follow and who would be their spiritual as well as their political leader. That was the hope that they had in Christ. These days, there are people who come to Jesus with hope, many people who come to Jesus with hope. But in many ways, their hopes are still focused in on things they want for themselves in this life. People come to Jesus with hope about personal prosperity or with hope about healing from diseases or with hope about the reconciliation of broken relationships. And so people still come to Jesus with hope. But Jesus is going to be the next speaker in this section. And Jesus does something that reframes their expectations. And just as many people, both then and now, come to Jesus with hope, What Jesus says to them applies to us as well. Many people come and look to Jesus with hope. But what we hope for in Jesus usually needs to be corrected. Many people have hopes pinned to Jesus Christ. But the hopes that we have in Jesus Christ are often not the correct hopes that we should have. And in this next section of Scripture, beginning in verse 25, Jesus goes about correcting the false hopes that these two disciples of his had. In verse 25, we read these words. He, that of course is Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. In this section, Jesus goes about correcting the false hopes of these two of his disciples. And he begins in a way that is, frankly, quite insulting. The words that Jesus uses in verse 25, when he begins to speak, are very insulting to these two people who were followers of his. And the truth of the matter is, in many ways, we, even we who follow Jesus Christ and call him our Lord and Savior, in many ways, we share the same kind of attitude and the same kind of response that these two people shared. Usually our hopes about Jesus need to be corrected. And the reason for that is because we're spiritually defective. We need our hope corrected because we are spiritually defective. And again, the way I've paraphrased this, the way I've described this sounds insulting, but it's not nearly as insulting as what Jesus said in verse 25. Notice again what it says there. It says, he said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in correcting the false hopes of of these disciples of his are ones that take them on spiritually. He begins by saying, you are spiritually defective. That's why you've lost hope. That's why you can't understand the meaning of these things. You have a spiritual problem and it needs to be corrected. When in verse 25, Jesus says to them, how foolish you are. The word foolish is a word that describes ignorance. It's a word that describes a lack of understanding. It's not necessarily an insult insult on somebody's intelligence, what they could know. Instead, it's an insult on what they don't know. It's their ignorance that Jesus is correcting here. The reason why we are spiritually defective when our hope is not properly aligned with Jesus is because we are spiritually ignorant. That's how Jesus opens in verse 25 when he says, how foolish you are. But he goes further in verse 25 and says, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And the original wording is slow of heart to believe these things. This indicates that not only are we spiritually ignorant, But we are spiritually stubborn. Being slow of heart is almost like an animal that is on a leash that you're trying to pull and it's digging in its heels because it doesn't want to go along with you in the direction that you're being taken. That's sort of how Christ is describing the spiritual um, will of the people that he is talking about here. They are spiritually defective not only because they are ignorant, but because they are stubborn. They're stubbornly clinging to their hopes about Jesus rather than letting the Word of God correct and fill their hearts with the proper hope in Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, again, that while many people in our world have hope in Jesus, a lot of us still have Areas of our own lives where we are spiritually ignorant and spiritually stubborn. And this is why sometimes our hopes in Jesus get shaken. We've put our hopes in something other than what God's Word says. 
because we are spiritually defective. We are immature in our spiritual life. We don't want to, have to give up our cherished ideas about what Jesus should do for us and could do for us. And you see this in many ways in the Christian world, in, in the Christian life. In talking with Christians and hearing what their expectations are about what should be true because they're followers of Jesus Christ. You'll hear many things that are not scriptural and not doctrinally correct about what they think the Christian life should be about or what God should do for us who are in Christ. The problem, when we lose hope in Jesus or when our hope in Jesus flickers, is not that God has done something wrong or that Christ has failed us. The problem is with us. We have wrong hopes. We are spiritually ignorant. We are spiritually stubborn. This is why we struggle This is why our hope in Jesus gets weak. We need our hope corrected because we are spiritually defective. And because we're spiritually defective, we misunderstand the Word of God. And that leads us to the second part of how Jesus corrected these disciples. We need our hope corrected because we don't understand God's plan for Jesus. Why do people have false hopes about Christ? It's because they don't understand what God has said. And because they don't understand what God has said or don't want to believe it because they're spiritually stubborn, that's why they struggle with false hopes about Jesus. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus goes about unfolding the plan of God for these two disciples that he loves very much. And in verse 26, Jesus lays out the story for them. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And there's a chronological sequence that must happen in the life of Christ. And we need to see that chronological sequence. And so in these next subpoints, I put some words in all caps to to try to show you the chronological sequence that Jesus is emphasizing here. As he lays out the plan of God for himself, from the scriptures for these people. He tells them that there is a necessary chronology in the things that had to happen. And the first thing he tells them is this, that Jesus could not redeem anyone until he died for our sins. Now, before we dive into verse 26, we need to refresh our memories about the passage and remember what the words that one of these disciples used in verse 21 was. That disciple said, we hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And I told you that word redeem means to buy back from the marketplace. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus did come to redeem not just Israel, but certainly many people from Israel. Jesus was coming to redeem people, but not in the way that they expected. And yes, the redemption that these people wanted is still in the plan of God, but there were chronological steps that had to happen first. And so verse 26 says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? And the word have to in our English translation is one word in the original Greek. It's a three-letter word, the word day. It means it is necessary. What Jesus is saying in the strongest possible terms that he could 
is that something had to happen before God could set up the kingdom, before the Messiah could be crowned king. Something else had to happen first. And that is that he had to die for our sins. In verse 26, he says, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things? And the the part about suffering these things goes back to verse 20 where it says, They crucified him. Jesus is saying, you don't understand. You think the crucifixion was somehow a deviation from the plan of God. You think it was a setback in the goals of Messiah. But Jesus says, if you were really tuned in spiritually, you would understand that this was necessary to the plan of God. Jesus could not redeem anyone until he died for our sins. And the reason for that is the kingdom that Jesus will establish is going to be filled with people who are righteous. But there is none of us who is righteous on his own. No, not one, the scripture says. And so Christ offered himself on the cross to be our sacrifice, to exchange his life for our sins, to take the penalty for sins that we owe to God so that we could be redeemed. If Jesus did not die first, he would have set up a kingdom that had no people in it because none of us is righteous before a holy God. It is only in the exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness that anyone ever is qualified to enter the kingdom of God. And so Christ had to die for sins before he could do anything else in the plan of God. Jesus could not redeem anyone until he died for our sins. But he goes on and says more in verse 26. He says, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? There's more to the plan of God than just for Jesus to die on the cross. The sufferings of Christ precede and they must precede his glorification. But his glorification is coming. Just as Jesus could not redeem anyone until he died for our sins, just as surely then, verse 26 tells us that after he died for our sins and rose again, then he received the glory that he deserved. And Remember when Jesus was on trial, he said, you're going to see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. The glorification of Jesus Christ was coming in those days. It's happened now. And it will unfold in this earth when Christ returns. But it was only after he died for our sins and rose again that Jesus could receive the glory that he deserves as Messiah, as the Lord. But Jesus goes on and after explaining sort of in in summary form what God's plan was by saying, Christ had to suffer and then enter his glory. Then in verse 27, Jesus goes on to tell them this, that God has laid out this entire plan in Scripture for anyone to see. Verse 27 says this, And and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scripture concerning himself. The phrase Moses and all the prophets was one of the ways in which People in the times of Jesus refer to all of what we call the Old Testament scriptures. And what Christ did in this section 
is he began with the very beginning, with the book of Genesis, the books of Moses. And he went chronologically through the Old Testament and cited Scripture telling them again and again and again what God's promises about the Messiah were and how those promises unfolded in God's grand plan for redemption. In these passages that Jesus described and cited, he told them exactly where God's word had said that the Messiah must suffer first and then enter his glory. He proved it to them again and again from the scriptures. And the reason that these people did not have the proper hope in Jesus Christ was because they had not really digested what the entire plan of God for Messiah was from the Bible. They had not studied the scriptures and thought about the scriptures deeply enough and thoroughly enough to understand all that God had said. And so Jesus does it for him, for them. At the end of verse 27, it's describing how Jesus laid out the entire plan of God for these two people. Verse 27 says, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Many people look to Jesus with hope, but we need our hope corrected, usually. And the reason why we usually need our hope corrected is that we don't really understand the plans of God. We may read scripture but we read it in a very myopic way, in a very um, unnecessarily or improperly personal way. We don't read it to understand the plan that God has laid out. We read it to reaffirm the hopes that we have for our lives. And this is why, or this happens when people take a portion of Scripture and they memorize it or claim it out of context from what the entirety of the passage is saying. This is things like uh, the common verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you. That's in the Bible for sure. But it comes in a much wider context. It's not a universal uh, promise that any Christian or any believer can claim. It's part of the unfolding of the plan of God. And if you take that verse only and take it out of context, you're going to put your hope somewhere different than where God's Word says it should be. Or like when people pray the prayer of Jabez, or when they say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, when they're on mile 20 of the marathon that they're running, and they're trying to get to the end of the marathon, and they quote that verse and claim it as if it's a promise from God. These people are taking Scripture, yes, and they're meditating on Scripture, yes, but not in a way that's connected to the entire plan of God. And if you've come to this message today and your hope in Jesus is fading, it's flickering, it's weak at best, let me suggest to you that the reason it is may be because you've failed to understand God's entire plan. Maybe you're watching this message so that God can do some correcting in your hopes. He can work on you spiritually, just as he did with these two men. Work on your spiritual ignorance and stubbornness and help you understand the larger plan that God has for all of us who are his followers. Many people look to Jesus with hope, but 
what we hope for in Jesus usually needs to be corrected in one way or another. That's what Christ has done in this passage of Scripture. The way that Christ corrected their hope was to help them understand all that God had said about Messiah. And so when we understand God's plan for Jesus, we get a better brand of hope. Jesus did not take away the hope of these people. He replaced the flickering hopes they had with their false view of Messiah, with a much grander and a much greater and a more true sense of hope for God and his people. And as we continue following this story in verse 29, we'll see how God's plan for Jesus and understanding it gives us a better brand of hope than the very limited ones we often have when we come to Jesus. Verse 28 continues the story and says this, As they approached the village, this is the village of Emmaus, the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. And so Christ joined these people along the way and he entered into their conversation. And Christ did not suggest to them that he was going to the same place that they were going. And so as they were about to turn and enter the road that would take to the village, Jesus maybe went a a few steps further as if he were going to continue traveling. Verse 29 says, But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. These two people show great hospitality to this stranger. And they give him, or they offer to him, a place to enjoy an evening meal and to sleep for the night. So Christ enters into the home where they were traveling. And then in verse 30, we see a very interesting sight. Verse 30 says, When he was at the table with them, and if I've understood this passage right, at least one of the people in this story owns the home that they were traveling to. This was their home. This was their table. And yet Jesus takes over the situation as the Lord often does. Verse 30 says, When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give to them. Jesus steps into the role of host, uninvited. He just takes on the role of host. But he does it in such a way that it reminds us and reminded these disciples of a couple of other instances where Christ had served as a host. The most recent of these, of course, was just a few days before when Christ offered the elements of the Passover meal as what we now call the Lord's Supper. The language where Jesus gave the Lord's Supper is very, very similar to the language we see in verse 30. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. This is very similar language to the language of the Lord's Supper, but it's also very similar in language to the language of Christ's feeding of the 5,000, where the same type of language is employed. Now, this is not the Lord's Supper that they were celebrating. We know that for a couple of reasons. One reason we can say that is because there was no wine. So Jesus didn't take the glass of wine and say, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. And I think that would be pretty important if this were to completely remind us of the Lord's Supper. But also, Jesus had already told the disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, he says, I will not eat this 
this Passover meal, this Lord's Supper again with you until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus had said, this is the last time on earth you'll celebrate such a meal with me, the Lord's Supper with me. And so this isn't the Lord's Supper that they are observing here. But Christ uses this opportunity of their fellowship at the table to remind them of other places where he had provided for his people and where they had enjoyed this kind of table fellowship with him. And that is the point at which Christ our Lord lifted the veil from their eyes and allowed them to understand who they had been talking to all along. Verse 31 says, Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Jesus, as he begins to instill a better brand of hope in them, begins by telling them and showing them this, that God's plan gives us hope through fellowship with Christ. The reason that Christ did this at their table was not only to emphasize and demonstrate his lordship, but also to under uh, or to uh, underline for them the fact that they were in fellowship with him that's what the lord's supper is all about it's about a continual reminder every time we observe it that we belong to christ and we are his invited guests and we will be with him at his wedding feast because he gave himself for us and one of the reasons or one of the better aspects of hope that we have in christ is that we have true fellowship with God. Which would you rather have? Political freedom from the Romans or fellowship with God himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ? These two people, though their hopes for Christ as the political savior and redeemer, seemed dashed at this point are being shown by Christ that they have something much better than that. Instead of having a political king over them, they have a friendship with the Son of God himself. And Jesus uses this meal to emphasize their fellowship with him. And this is something to keep in mind for all of us. When we are discouraged, when our hope in God is flickering, God may not do for you the things that you think you've claimed from the scriptures. He may not help you finish the marathon because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But wouldn't you rather have the fellowship of knowing God, the access to him in prayer, the fellowship of his people around the table, more than just the power to complete your goals in life? This is what Christ offers to us when we really understand his plan and what he is all about. God's plan gives us hope through fellowship with Christ. But there's more than that. Because verse 32, it says, They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is such interesting language that is used here. In verse 32, when it says, we're not our hearts burning within us, what is being described here? What is being described here is an emotional response to the words of Christ. And that emotional response resonates with the idea of hope 
They had said in verse 21, we were hoping that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. But those hopes seem to have been dashed by the crucifixion and the empty tomb. Now as Christ has opened the scriptures to them, their hope is revived and it's empowered, just like adding kindling to a fire makes that fire rise up even greater. So the hope that they once had that was flickering in their hearts has now been revived by the very word of God spoken by God himself, the word. But notice how this hope was revived in their hearts. Verse 32 says, We're not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. And this phrase, open the scriptures, it doesn't mean a literal opening of the scrolls. It means to explain what the Scriptures mean, exactly what Jesus did. And that's the word that's used in verse 27. He explained the Scriptures to them. It's like opening their eyes and opening what the Scriptures mean by His explanation of it. Jesus revived their hope and replaced the hope that they had with a greater hope, a better brand of hope by taking them to the Word of God and explaining what it meant so that they could understand it. And this caused that, that spiritual emotion, that burning in their hearts, the awakening of hope, the awakening of great spiritual fervor. And it happened through the expo exposition of Scripture. God's plan gives us hope through fellowship with Christ. It is only our fellowship with Christ that gives us anything, but... God's plan gives us hope through the exposition of Scripture as Jesus explained the Scriptures to the people. God replaced the false hopes they had with a better brand of hope, a true brand of hope, an eternal brand of hope, a hope that is founded on God's plan as revealed in His Word. And this is what you and I need when our hope in Christ is flickering. This is what we need when we are discouraged. This is what we need when we are fearful like maybe you are at this time. Yes, we need help when we are laid off from our jobs or when our bank accounts are dwindling or when someone we know is sick with the virus and we're worried about their future. Yes, we need hope in those times. But we need, need something greater than that hope. We need a hope of eternal life in the kingdom of God. And that only comes through the exposition of Scripture. This is how Christ replaced the false hopes of his people or the incomplete and immature hopes of his people with a better brand of hope, God's brand of hope. He did it by showing their fellowship with him and by giving them the exposition of Scripture. This is what you and I need when our hope is flickering. We need to remind ourselves that we belong to Jesus Christ and that nothing can separate us from his love. But we also need to dig deeply into his word, not to give us band-aids for our spiritual wounds, but to root out from us the false hopes and ideas we have and replace them with the truth of God's word. And so the big idea for this message the truth that we need to take away from it is this. When you need hope, go to Scripture and study God's plan. Isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ, who himself is the very Word of God, that's what John 1 calls him, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. Isn't it interesting that the very Word of God Himself, someone who created Scripture, every time He spoke, isn't it interesting that He went to the Scriptures to give people hope? And He did so because that is where the power of God lies for us. If we needed a personal appearance of Christ like these two people received, every time our hope was failing, we would be in big trouble. But God has given us something just as powerful as a personal visit from Christ. He's given us his written word where God has laid out his entire plan. And if we understand his plan and his promises in context, it can give us the hope that we need for this life and for eternal life. At the end of our passage, these people are so revived spiritually by what they have experienced. Seeing Christ the risen Lord, having had fellowship with Him at the table, and having had their spiritual lives and their hope revived by Him. Verse 33 says, They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together. And while they were there, these other disciples who weren't with them, they had heard a report that Simon Peter had seen Christ. Verse 33 says, uh, they were assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. So after hearing the reports the other disciples have had of the risen Lord, these two people add to it their testimony of experiencing Christ the risen Lord. In verse 35 it says, Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized them when he broke the bread. Christ offers us a hope in him that is so much better than the false hopes we place on him. When we focus on ourselves and when we myopically concentrate on our own worries and fears, as much as God cares about those, they are so small compared to the grand vision of redemption God has for people. And that vision of redemption will be spelled out next Sunday in the next paragraph that we come to. But for this message, I want you to understand what hope is really all about. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you are not, the Bible never promises that you will avoid suffering in this world. Just as Jesus had to suffer and then enter into his glory, the Bible says this is often the will of God for his followers, that suffering is part of following Jesus Christ. The hope that you need is not that you will avoid suffering or that God will take your suffering away. The hope that you need is that if you're in Christ and in fellowship with him, and if you understand the plan of God, that you will enter the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ as Lord when he returns, because that's the plan that God has established. And how do you find that hope? You go to Scripture and study what it says. You don't get what Jesus gave to these disciples by just skimming the words of Scripture or just finding a verse that feels like it speaks to you and going with that. No, it takes the dedicated, intense study and meditation of God's Word to understand the full plan of God. God's people had been studying the Old Testament for thousands of years, and yet somehow even though they saw the words that Jesus had given to them in this passage, that Jesus exposited for them in this passage, even though they saw those words, they didn't comprehend it. 
And this is why you and I need to go to Scripture as followers of Jesus Christ. We need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We need to study it. We need to think about its meaning so that we can have true hope. And so if you need hope today, and who of us doesn't? Let me urge you, go to Scripture and study God's plan. This is a better brand of hope. It's found in Jesus Christ, and it's explained in the Scripture. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and how it corrects our false hopes and our misplaced expectations and dreams and calls us, Lord, to correct our thinking so that we can have a true hope, the one that you offer to us in the Scriptures, the one that will never spoil or fade, that's reserved in heaven for us. And I pray, Lord, for your people today that we would turn to you, we would turn to your word when we need hope. And God, we thank you for the promise that you give hope when we understand your plan. We claim that promise through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I want to encourage you, before we finish up with a worship song, to let us know if you have any needs that we can help you with or pray with, pray with you about. If you would go to the app again and go ahead and tap on the Sunday tab and then tap on the back of the virtual response card, that'll give us an opportunity to uh, hear from you. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you think you do and you've, you've been following Jesus somewhat, but you've never really understood that you need his death and resurrection to save you. We would love to show you more about what it means to be a Christian. And so all you need to do is just check the line that says, I would like to know more about how to become a Christian and give us your name and your email address, your phone number so we can contact you. And we would love to uh, contact you and talk with you more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to have the real hope that God offers to us in him. If you have any other needs that we can help you out with, there's space at the bottom of the virtual response card. and You can just type in your prayer request or any need that you have, and we'll be happy to pray with you and pray for you and, and do whatever we can to meet your needs. So go ahead and fill that uh, back of the virtual response card out and go ahead and hit submit. And I hope you'll join together with us again in worship.